Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, here on the 15th of June. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge again today. This is week two of her vacation, and it's been just utterly delightful to be with all of you during these last seven days and just talking about things of the kingdom, fixing our eyes on Jesus together. And I see that our good friend Paul Perot is also back in the studio today after a day away. And, Paul, yesterday we had quite a few gremlins in the soundboard, and so it seems like maybe you are the official guardian of all things sound because things seem to be appearing that. smooth this morning. So welcome back to the studio. Well, we just started. We just started. Yeah, Come but on. things even yesterday at this time, as the listeners know, we were struggling to get people on Skype. And so I think we have some clear connections, including that with our first guest, Mark Caleb Smith. Yeah, he's he's ready to go minute. on Skype, so we're good to go. He is indeed. I'm looking forward to the conversation with him. One of the articles that caught my attention that we'll talk about, and Mark is a political science professor from Cedarville University. And it, it, there was a headline in which the the president and his administration decided that their Department of Justice was going to go to court and vigorously defend, is the language, vigorously defend religious school exemptions. And for those of us that follow this kind of news, it seems like there can, there, there's this consistent encroaching upon our rights and freedom of expression and, and just religious protections on a number of levels. So it's interesting that this administration would perhaps be defending it. I'm going to ask about Mar- Mark about that in just a second. Yeah, I have my thoughts, but I'd rather let Mark say he's the smart guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And this is an example, I think, for us as believers to practice the virtue of what I would describe as intellectual Honesty, And mm. this is when we talk about so many different fractures in our country, relationally and politically, positionally and in all these different levels. This is one of those virtues to cultivate that we can get so hardened in our positions on any given subject that if we don't practice the virtue of intellectual honesty, we can kind of get rooted and, and always be at odds with one another. And what intellectual honesty means is that when confronted with evidence that is different than my existing beliefs, Am I willing to change my beliefs? And that could be about another person. It can happen in the context of our marriage. I mean, I don't know how many of us practice intellectual honesty when we're in the middle of arguing with our spouse, perhaps, if they have a point to make or some kind of idea that would be worth paying attention to. And so looking at the situation for those of us that have been, again, understandably concerned with maybe the trajectory of the encroaching on religious rights, this might be a situation, and Mark will tell us more, in which we're seeing some hope that the current administration will actually protect those rights. And if they are, it is incumbent upon us to practice that intellectual honesty that say, hey, wait a second here, maybe I need to change my mind. And it's in the changing of the mind on a number of different kinds of conversations that helps bring people back together and say, hey, look, you might actually have a point. I mean, Paul, people are hardly ever all wrong or hardly mm-hmm. ever all right. And yet we sort of have positioned ourselves this way in so many of our different conversations. If we can just find a little bit of common ground here and there, it starts opening up the door for more common ground and can begin to heal some people. Exactly. It's uh, okay. I've been reading too much Kuiper, but the idea of common grace, even people who may be your enemy, you disagree with, 
they may have some points you need to consider. Yeah, it doesn't so. mean that we don't argue, argue vociferously no, we for do. a certain point of view. Of course we do. But if we as believers can cultivate that virtue of intellectual honesty, we can be part of some of the healing process that is so desperately necessary. Up next, Mark Caleb Smith. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, that is the music of Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, and that'll wake you up in the morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. We're actually starting a short summer class session here at Cedarville, so I'm teaching this week and teaching next week. Yeah. So teaching in the middle of summer, but I actually enjoy it. Oh, that's great. What class are you teaching right now, Mark? Uh, We have a gen ed course called Politics and American Culture. It's required for all Cedarville students. Um, and it's it's an American government course with some culture elements kind of thrown into it. And I'm teaching right now sort of prospective students who are high school students getting college credit. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a good group to teach. Yeah, it's fun being with the 17, 18, 19 year olds like that and seeing their perspective on the world. And there certainly is a lot to cover in the world these days, including the Supreme Court, which has been surprisingly crickets in terms of this is their alleged busy season in which a lot of cases are going to get decided that will have an impact on our culture. And yet we haven't heard much from them. No, we haven't. We always get conditioned to spending June sort of on pins and needles waiting for the court to do what we want it to do. Uh, But they tend to have a sense of the dramatic, don't they? I mean, sometimes I think they push things toward the end and just drop a bunch of bombshells on us all at once. So that kind of feels like where we're heading this time. Um, But, you know, you really can't read much into it. I mean, who knows what the court's actually going to do with those cases? If you were the looking for just one case that would have the most amount of impact, at least in your own mind, in terms of how we are going to be understanding our life moving forward as a country, what case are you looking at? Uh, None of them in particular, to be honest with you. I don't think we're going to see anything that's going to be radical and dramatic. I think those are going to be coming up probably next year uh, instead of in this particular term. Um, What's interesting to me, and you and I are talking about this a little bit off the air, is some of the cases we've seen handed down recently have been unanimous decisions. And I think it's interesting for people in our culture to look at the court acting unanimously. To me, that's a pretty important indicator for where the court might be headed. Yeah, it's interesting in, in light of all of the hand-wringing about packing the court and, and trying to perhaps politicize the court, that they do seem to be sending a bit of a message in terms of the fact that they don't want to be politicized. Is that how you're reading it as well? I, I think so. Yeah, I do. I think so. And I, I think sometimes we have some misconceptions about the court that it's uh, always five to four, six to three kind of decisions but that's because most of the high-profile, contentious decisions might be five to four or six to three. So much of what the court does really isn't all that contentious, according to the court. Uh, whether they're interpreting federal statutes or dealing with constitutional issues, they often uh, are eight to one or nine to nothing in a pretty open and shut case where there's wide agreement on the court. But of course, those don't get the same kind of media coverage because they don't—they aren't those hot-button cultural kinds of issues that we tend to gravitate toward. And so I think that's part of it. But I think also as well, the court's feeling some pressure to be a little bit more unified uh, because, as you said, these threats of court packing. Justices are very cognizant of the court's credibility. And I think they're concerned about the possibility of court packing and even the rhetoric of court packing 
And if they can be, if they can close ranks and show some uh, support for one another, I think they're going to do it if they're able. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's change the topic to that which I was previewing prior to our segment and the idea of intellectual honesty in terms of a look at this uh, Department of Justice of the Biden administration deciding to, at least in their words, vigorously defend religious school exemptions. Uh, tell our, our listeners a little bit about what's happening here and, and your take on that as well. <clears throat> well, there's a lawsuit proceeding through the federal system uh, where groups of former students at Christian universities uh, are challenging the policies at those universities, uh, basically arguing that if they're discriminatory against uh, LGBTQ uh, members of those institutions, then the school's policy should be considered unconstitutional. Uh, they should be in violation of the Constitution and violation of gender and sexuality protections. And so this lawsuit's sort of proceeding. <clears throat> and as you said, the Biden administration has decided to uh, defend the religious institutions and their uh, federal religious exemptions that are within Title IX itself. You know, it, it might so kind of sound normal that a, a government, you know, an executive branch would decide to defend federal law. That's kind of normal. That's kind of what <laughs> we, we expect it to work. Right. But that isn't always the case. And so, uh, you know, the Defense of Marriage Act, when we talk about marriage equality, we talk about definitions of marriage, the Obama administration did not defend that federal law in federal court, and it ended up getting overturned, uh, not just because of that, but it ended up getting overturned in the process. And so I think this is a good sign from the Biden administration. It's not a given that they would do it, and the fact that they are doing it's going to cause some wrinkles on their own side of the aisle. And my understanding of this is that people will continue to have the freedom to believe what they believe in, in terms of their religious convictions, specifically related to the LGBTQ community, that it, just because you don't necessarily advocate for LGBTQ civil rights doesn't mean that um, you need to be censored in these schools. There's freedom to have that point of view. There's freedom to have that point of view, but there'd also be freedom for the institutions to make their own decisions about how they deal with students and faculty or staff or others uh, who may be living in a lifestyle that really runs counter uh, to the school's doctrinal commitments. And so uh, it would give those institutions the freedom to live their mission as they see fit even though this is a very difficult, complicated cultural issue at the moment. Um, and, and I think um, you know, in some ways that kind of feels like where we're headed, even when you look at this from the Supreme Court's perspective, there's going to be compromise on these issues. I just don't see any way that we're going to see religious institutions just get completely demolished uh, with the First Amendment uh, when it comes to this issue. At the same time, uh, it's obvious that the LGBTQ community has made a lot of progress legally, culturally, and politically. And so there's going to be some compromise at work. And I think maybe the Biden administration is giving us a, sing a signal uh, that compromise is coming. So one more question on this, Mark, just to make sure yeah. that I'm clear on this, is it, the idea that a religious institution could maybe hold to a traditional view of marriage and then uh, take action against employees that are perhaps advocating against their religious view so I'm, I'm assuming that's what, what is the case here. But is the flip also true that if any kind of organization decides to say to their employees, we are going to advocate for LGBTQ or I see some hand wringing in a different conversation that every employee has to be vaccinated. I mean, th these are different conversations, but we're just we're, we're talking about the level of institutional power and employee freedom and the intersection of that, if I understand it correctly. No, that's right. That, that's correct. And so but, it, but for religious institutions, of course, they have that additional shield of the free exercise of religion in the First Amendment, whereas a corporation, for example, generally wouldn't have that necessarily level of protection 
uh, within the First Amendment that a religious organization might. Um, right now, the argument's really about how extensive is religious liberty. You know, does religious liberty flow into organizations and allow them to make decisions about how they function, whether it's a school, whether it's a parachurch organization, a mission board, uh, or of course the church itself? And and that's really the argument we're getting into. Now that does filter into businesses. It could filter into our you know famous cake makers and florists and others who are fighting these kinds of battles as well. But this deals with explicitly explicitly religious organizations like Cedarville, where I teach. That's interesting stuff, Mike. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll change the topic to something that was out in the news, and I know it's sort of rumbling beneath the surface on a few different levels, but that is the ongoing partisanship in our country that might lead to maybe a more of a permanent fracturing as a way to develop peace among us. So I'd be curious to get your thought about whether or not the United States can stay the United States in the next 10, 20, 30 years ahead. Welcome back to the show. We are chatting with Mark Smith, who is a professor of political science at Cedarville University, he joins us regularly to talk through some of the political and cultural headlines of the day. And Mark, if somebody was to do a Google search on secession and in, in meaning in terms of breaking apart a union, we would obviously Texas seems to come up in every Google search. They seem to be wanting to have seceded for a number of years. California comes up. I see there's a suburb in Atlanta that is part of the city of Atlanta that wants to secede as well. And there seems to be more and more conversation about whether we can hold this union together, given the significantly different values that people share. So what are you seeing in there? Is there interesting story in the Atlantic talking about four different kinds of countries we're living in. Yeah, I think I saw the other day that there's a group in uh, Washington State, if I'm not mistaken, that wants to join Idaho and they want to call it <laughs> Greater Idaho or something along those lines. It's a, it's a, it's not a new phenomenon. And this isn't unusual for people who are, uh, let's say, part of a community that kind of runs counter to a broader group, whether that's a state or a county or a city. Uh, and they want to make their own decisions, and they feel put upon uh, when the state or the city is, say, more conservative or more liberal than they would prefer, and they feel like they're losing control of reality. Uh, this isn't new, but I will say that I think it's becoming more pronounced uh, in the last 20 to 30 years. And I think it's mostly because we put so much within the federal government's basket and purview uh, that people feel like they just don't have options other than to look for representation uh, at, at higher levels of office. And so, for example, if you're in a state like Washington, you feel like the state's making decisions you don't like, you're never going to be able to elect conservative members of Congress from the state of Washington. So you feel like you need to be in Idaho instead. Well, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have had that many concerns. More of your things would have been dealt with at the state level. You have a chance to elect conservative state representatives, for example, and that would be sufficient. But people don't feel like that these days because Washington is doing so much. Uh, but I think this is going to continue. You know, the article that you referenced in The Atlantic is really interesting because it sort of unpacks different uh, fractures that we're looking at in society. Yeah. Speak more to that, Mark, a little bit in terms of the the uh, impact of federalization or the consolidation of power in Washington, D.C. In, in your observations, have you seen sort of a subtle but very consistent movement from maybe one political party that's trying to consolidate that power within Washington, D.C. And, and thus be able to wield that power more effectively around the country? I, I think if we're honest about it, you know, and you, you've talked about intellectual honesty this morning, if we're honest about it, the Democratic Party generally wants to consolidate more power at that federal level uh, than the Republican Party has historically. At the same time, uh, Republicans seem to be joining in the, the parade to some extent within the last decade or two as well. 
um, wanting to federalize issues as much as they can. Uh, you know, back in the day, Tip O'Neill, the former Democratic Speaker of the House, famously said, all politics is local. Uh, now, I think we almost have to say all politics in America appears to be national and federal. You know, when you look at our media consumption, uh, we're leaning toward those more federal outlets of information, which means we're concerned with presidential elections more than gubernatorial elections. Uh, we're concerned with federal policy and federal court decisions way more than we are concerned with state and with local government. Um, and so all that's kind of shifting in a way, and it's pretty far removed from what our founders in, intended when it came to how they constructed our form of government. Interesting. Well, let's say for just the sake of argument that maybe a city does secede from another city, or I know there's the case going on in Buckhead, Georgia right now. It's, it's right. a suburb of Atlanta in which they're looking to move away from Atlanta and form their own government and, and get out of being a part of Atlanta. Right. Or as you referenced, uh, Washington becoming greater Idaho. I know California, yep. there's been movements to move into three or four different states. If that sort of thing happens, Mark, from the perspective of history and, and your view from political science, does that help resolve things in different countries and different places? Or does it just create more opportunity to say, hey, we're going to break away too. And pretty soon, like we have 500 denominations in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, <laughs> are we running into the same kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I think at some point, you you know, you only you keep breaking down to the point where you can't even solve the problems that you're looking at. I mean, we have to realize um, sometimes we need bigger forms of government to deal with bigger problems that are confronting and simply breaking into smaller pieces doesn't mean you're actually going to be able to solve problems. What it does mean, though, is you'll be voting with similar kinds of people to choose office. But that doesn't mean you're going to be able to really present the solutions uh, that you're hoping for. And I, I think it's probably uh, just a, re a reflection for how frustrated people are about government in general. Um, people don't seem to be all that satisfied with government, regardless of who's in control. You know, If you look at long-term trends on trust in government, for example— uh, that's been in pretty serious state of decline. And what we've seen along with that as political scientists, we refer to it as political efficacy. You know, do you feel like you make a difference? Do you feel like your actions make a difference in the political world? And that's been a pretty consistent state of decline in America as well. And so even though we're more connected in terms of media and information, I think we feel less influential as members, even when it comes to the effect of our own vote. And that's a pretty uncomfortable place to be in, I think, as a society. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, the lessons of history might teach us, Mark, that uh, when government, when, when people begin to be part of a government, often they do get corrupted by power and they seek to hold on to that power at whatever cost, right? I mean, I, 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 there's no reason why the United States would be exempt from that sort of move towards power. No, not at all. No, not at all. Um, and I think our founders put together a pretty rigorous and interesting form of government, uh, but that's changed pretty dramatically uh, during the last century in particular, so that those checks and balances that were in place to really restrain power and fragment power, um, now uh, certainly there are movements to, to get rid of those checks and balances to one extent or another. So, you know, we're talking about filibuster reform, we're talking about packing the court. Uh, those are really just simply efforts to consolidate power. And let's just be honest about it. Yeah, indeed. Well, Mark, thanks for joining us this morning and talking us through all of this. I hope you have a great time shaping the, the minds of young people here in this gen ed course that you're going to be teaching later today. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, indeed. We'll take a short break here and have some bottom of the hour news, some conversations about the world's tallest roller coaster of all things. And then when we come back for the second half of this hour, we'll be joined by Stefano Freer, who's an author of God of the Impossible, and we'll be talking about the movement of God among the Muslim world. So it should be an exciting conversation coming up here next on Mornings Without Carmen.
Paul, are you a roller coaster guy? Love them. You love, love roller coasters. Em. You love roller coasters. Yep. Last time, I was pretty excited last time I was going to ride a roller coaster. I think it was the Hulk ride at Universal Studios in oh, Florida several years yeah. ago. And you sort of get shot out of this cannon and then you go uh, and this loop-de-loop deal. And I was very excited about that until I realized that I apparently, at my advanced age, do not any longer have spinal fluid that is hydrating <laughs> the brain. And so my <laughs> cerebellum was sort of knocking around in my skull the entire time I got off. I don't think I could walk straight for the next uh, several minutes. But there is some exciting news for those of us that like roller coasters. And that is the world's tallest single coaster has opened in New Jersey. It is in a Six Flags Great Adventure Park, of course. 13 stories high, oh. 130 feet, 13 stories high, track stretches over 3,000 feet, and you will travel at speeds at 58 miles an hour facing an 87-degree first drop. I don't know what all of that means. My physics is a little bad, but it, that sounds fast and yeah, steep yeah, fairly fast. and scary and headache-inducing is what that seems like to me. If you're listening this morning, I'd love to hear if you are a roller coaster person or not just that if maybe you're more of a merry-go-round person, a, a, a spinning <laughs> teacup person, you tell me your favorite amusement park ride. I'd love to have that text in the studio here at 877-933-2484. It's fun to start the, the day like this with some fed headlines. It's also fun to start the day with some headlines about how Jesus is moving in the world. And we're going to do that just next. With uh, up next with our, our next guest talking about how God is moving among the Muslim World And it, it just takes me into some of the, the New Testament times where Paul had to go out in sort of the wild west of the Mediterranean world to people that had not ever really heard much about the faith. And yet over and over and over again, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, met those people. And that's exactly what's happening today in the Muslim world. Stay with us. You won't want to miss this next interview. Did you know that you can teach your child some amazing stuff? through your silence? In fact, you not only can, but you should. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Proverbs 17:28 says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. The next time your teen decides to open up, don't jump in too quickly to give your opinion. Instead, try keeping quiet and let her be the one to open the door. And don't freak out when your teen speaks without a filter, let them talk. Sometimes they're just verbally processing what's happening in the world. You might have some masterful insights to share, but your teen has to be in the right mindset to receive it. Soon enough, she'll be ready to hear your pearls of wisdom. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to the show. Delighted to be joined at this time by Reverend Stefano Fier. He is actually calling us from Germany at this point in time, if I understand correctly. Stefano is the author of a book, God of the Impossible Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. Good morning, Stefano. Good morning, Peter. Great to be with you this morning. It is great to be with you as well. This is a conversation is very much looking forward to. I remember maybe about 15 years ago now, I met with a professor who was doing some of his research in the non-Western world. And his question, Stefano, was wondering about how God's Spirit is active in the non-Western world amongst other religions. And it didn't mean that God's Spirit was meeting people through the lens of these other religions like Muslim, uh, Islam or, or Buddhism or Hinduism, but it did mean that God's Spirit maybe was active 
in the people of those religions in different ways. It was a fascinating supposition that he had, and uh, and it led to a lot of really interesting research. That's some of what you're seeing in the Muslim world, right? Absolutely. Uh, we see that the Lord is at work in the Muslim world. Uh, I see, especially as I travel a lot and I have so many friends from Muslim background, that uh, the Lord is active and working through his word. You know, we, we hear a lot about visions and whatever, and, and sure, this is there. But my experience is we should never underestimate the power of God's word. And sometimes it's a sentence or a few verses and it touches the heart of a Muslim. I love it. Well, you're the president of Call of Hope. You've been doing this work for a number of years among the Muslim community. And one of the things that's compelling to me are the stories that you've talked about in this book of God intersecting with people's lives. And this is, of course, consistent with the God of Scripture who would will that none would perish and seems to be willing to go after people from every walk of life and every circumstance, anybody who'd be willing to to turn. And we see that scriptural idea play itself out in the stories of these young men and women uh, about whom you write in this book. So we can go through some of the stories and also talk about some of the broader uh, concepts involved with them. Maybe tell us a little bit about the story of Sister Elmira, Jesus Loves Me, a woman. I'd be curious to hear more on that. Yeah, uh, Sister Almira, she is one of the many refugees uh, coming from Syria into Lebanon. Uh, she had in Syria a really terrible life. You know, she, she was a young girl um, as we know, little girls, she liked to play with little puppets and whatever, had really no ideas of the real world and for sure not of marriage and um, of, of men. And she really experienced that her parents took her away from her playing, brought her to a man. She had no idea why. And she was left in the house of this man. Mm. Um, she was, um, I don't know, I think nine, ten years old. Uh, and, and now she was living with this guy. And, and she didn't know what is happening. And, uh, of course, at the moment, then 12, 13, when uh, it was possible, um, this guy, well, of course, raped her. And she didn't know what is happening. And it was just a so terrible life for her. She uh, got a child. And um, then at some point, this husband in the war died. She had to come to Lebanon as a refugee. She um, found another man, another husband, uh, for sure, also a Muslim. But this was a guy who really loved her. And when she came the first time to our church, which we have there in the so-called Baker Valley, she heard about the love of God. And it was so new to her that God would love her. You know, she, she never heard that of Allah. And, and when she understood that people care for her, for her, a woman, you know, I mean, she learned as a woman, she has nothing to say. As a woman, she even has no say in whom she would marry, even not at what age, nothing. And now she understands, hey, here are people who take me as I am. And there is a God who takes me as I am. And this God loves me and he sent his son for me. And this actually changed her life completely. And wonderful was that full of fear, she went to her husband her new husband and told him 
that she left Islam and became a Christian and she was so afraid what is going to happen and this guy tells her hey honey I love you and I'm interested to hear what happened to you and what changed you and today uh, their whole family is in church and they are believing Christians. That's an incredible story, Stefano. I, I, I think in terms of follow-up, I think we can't hardly exaggerate too much how women are treated in that society. And, and if you were to walk in her shoes for even an hour or two or three in a day, just the, just the paralyzing fear. So uh, to have had an authentic encounter with God would maybe be the only explanation for why she would then have the courage to come out with that to her husband. Absolutely. And, you know, Peter, we know that it is not only that a husband would mistreat his wife, it is in this Muslim society that a woman is only half the worth of a man. I mean, uh, this is in Quran, this is in the uh, saying of Muhammad in the Hadith. So this is deeply rooted in society. And of course, at, at some point, um, women also believe that, you know, that, that they believe, yeah, this, this is how it is. If I go uh, to court, uh, it needs uh, two women to be worse of one man. This is what they know and this is what they feel and, and that they then understand, hey, here it is different. I have the same worth. I am a human being and I am loved by from God, but also accepted from Christians. It's interesting. In light of that kind of fear that women face, uh, I would be curious your perspective on just the generalized fear that people within the Muslim community might face based on their perception of God. Is there a sense in which Allah for them sort of has his thumb near the destruction button willing to press it at any time if people sort of step out of line? Because it seems at least outside looking in that some versions of Islam seem to be a little bit more fear-based. But I'd be curious from your perspective as an insider what you see in that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the problem is that they never know if they will be accepted from Allah or not. And the more somebody is into his religion, into Islam, the more his fear will also be there. Because they, of course, try to do what Allah tells them to do. Um, but they never know if this is enough. And they never know if at the end they will end up in hell. And I have so many friends who told me that this was actually the starting point for their journey towards God, that they were so much afraid that they never knew what is going to happen with them. You know, I have a friend in northern Kenya. Um, as a child, uh, he was always afraid of fire. He was so afraid of fire. And then he read in Quran that at some point he needs to go through fire. And his life was full of fear until the moment when he got a Bible and a missionary was able to tell him, hey, if you receive Jesus Christ, you do not have to go through fire. You are not going to hell. So, Peter, yes, you are right. Um, uh, many Muslims are very much afraid of Allah, afraid what is going to happen with them. And um, But God uses this also to show his love to them uh, and to show them how different he is. I love it. Well, that it does speak right into the heart of the good news that is Christianity and, and what we believe to be true is that, of course, 
like people following Islam, well, we can't measure up either. But uh, in the great Christian good news, there is the God who takes that part. And he says, I will I will take it on your behalf. And, and what an incredible witness of love of the God of the kingdom. We're going to take a short break here, Stefano. And when we come back, I've got a couple other stories to ask you about from the stories of this book, God of the Impossible Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. Highly recommend reading this if you're looking for some encouragement about how God is active in the world. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Stefano about a faker who became a true follower. Hope you're enjoying this conversation with Stefano Fear about uh, God of the Impossible, stories of hope from the Muslim world. And you are on the inside of this, Stefano. We're often just on the outside looking in, so it's great to hear your first-person perspective. And I love this story that is titled, A Faker Becomes a True Follower. I would imagine that many of us can sympathize with a person who feels like a bit of a faker, and yet when we actually become a true follower from the inside out. Yes, um, this is about Abdul. He is a very good friend of mine in Nigeria. Abdul, as a young boy, was growing up as a Muslim. He had to learn the whole Quran by heart. And Muslims actually understood that there is a very capable guy. So in his youth, they gave him a very interesting task to do. They told him, hey, Abdul, you are going now to church. You sit in the church, you listen to the announcements, to everything the Christians do, and you come back and tell us. So the classical spy. (laughs) And he was doing that, you know, he was going into the church and people loved him. He, He was sitting there, he listened, he interacted. Um, it, it came to the point where they asked him to go into baptism class. He agreed. He got baptized. Uh, they asked him to preach. They made him uh, a youth leader. But we should not forget, for six years, he was still a Muslim. Mm. Every day he went back and told the Muslims the plans of the Christians. He told me one day when he was in Germany in the car, he said, hey, Stefano, I am responsible for many Christians who lost their lives. Mm. Um, That was really, uh, of course, now in his perspective, very difficult. Uh, At some point, he was asked to come into a Christian youth meeting. More than 2,000 people were there. He hoped uh, he would be asked to speak, but they said, no, 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 you just sit and listen. And he told me, he said, an old man stood up and he said, oh, what, what would this old man be able to tell me? And this guy said, uh, I'm going to talk with you tonight about the one and only real God and that you need to follow him. And he said, we are going to open our books in 1 Kings chapter 18. We all know this is the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And this old man, he read, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And Abdul had the feeling, he said, hey, hey, who told this guy about me? This, this is exactly my situation. I'm, I'm on both sides. And he felt when this old man said, hey, stand up. If you really want to follow Christ today, he felt, well, I need to do that. But then he thought, well, I'm already a 
a Christian. People think I am a youth leader, but still he stood up. He stood there as the only person out of 2000. And, uh, you know, until that point, Abdul was accepted from the Muslims and the Christians. But when he really followed Christ, that was the second where persecution came into his life. Mm. Muslims tried to kill him. Um, and the Lord really was faithful to him. Also that he found a good Christian wife. That's another story how he find her, found her. But it was so clear that both of them said on the day of their marriage, we are investing our life to let Muslims know about Jesus, whatever the costs are. And, you know, their costs are great. I mean, their son was killed. People say their oldest son was slaughtered like a goat, actually, uh, on his university campus. And I will never forget when I sat with them in their sitting room and Abdul told me, see, even if the Muslims take all our four children from us, every child will take us closer to the Lord until one day we will be with him. Mm. And I feel this is really only the Lord who can give this strength. Also that he says, hey, I'm, I, I'm staying there in the north of Nigeria. I want to let the Muslims know about the love of Christ. But he also tells us in the West, he says, I can only do this as long as you pray for us. So, so it, it's a double thing, you know. He says, I, I, I'm there, but you need to pray for us. And then we can show the love of Christ to Muslims. And, and he's doing this. And that's amazing to me, you know, that he's even ready to help Muslims. And that was not easy to him, that uh, he felt he also needs to help Muslims by, for example, giving them goats, that their children can go to school with the proceeds of little goats they sell. He said in the beginning that was difficult for him because he felt, why should I help these people who persecute and hate me. But the Lord changed his heart and he understood I cannot only talk about love, I need to show love. Mm, Stefano, that is a breathtaking story. It's part of the book that you've written here called God of the Impossible, Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. Again, if you're listening this morning, this is a great read for you to pick up and uh, get some encouragement. And Stefano, as you're talking, it's almost as if you've transported me and our listeners right into the book of Acts or the, the early first century world. I think sometimes us in Western culture, we, we sort of live in this fog. Sometimes the fog is created by the economic opportunities that we have. Sometimes the fog is just because we're so busy arguing about different theological things, not unimportant, but sometimes we get caught up in ideas about the faith. And when we hear these stories of God actually intersecting with people, these are not all that different than what we see in the scripture in terms of, of people coming to life in these ways. And it just reminds me even of of uh, Paul when he was Saul and killing Christians and he became Paul and he then declared that he was the chief of sinners and yet God's grace saved him in those moments. That that seems to be what is happening with Brother Abdul here. Absolutely. And, you know, Abdul himself is saying that, that sometimes when he looks into the Bible, he feels he is like a Saul who became Paul. So so you're very right. This These are actually his own words. Fascinating. We have a brief time for just one last quick story here, and that is the lady who wanted to clean the church, Sister Fatima, we just have about two minutes left. Why don't you give us a little sense of what happened in the story? Well, with Fatima, she had a very good life in Syria. Then the war came. She lost everything. Uh, 
as a family, they came to Lebanon and she didn't have enough food to eat. So she went to our church because she knew there Christians give free food for Muslims. And she heard about the love of Christ. And it was so interesting that after a few times when she came, she went to our pastor and said, hey, I would like to clean the church for free. He said, hey, you don't need to do that. But she insisted. And later we understood she wanted to clean the church because she wanted to have more time, actually, to hear about Jesus and to ask questions. And after some time, she received the Lord. And what is so great about Fatima, she never stops of talking about Jesus. Never. She was almost killed. She had to lie down for seven months because of her injuries. But then she took the time to give every Muslim who visited her a New Testament. Our pastor was hardly able to understand what is happening there when she said, hey, bring me more New Testaments. I need to give that out. He felt, well, maybe she would have learned the lesson, you know. But no, she said, I need to let so many Muslims know about this wonderful Jesus who I know. What an incredible story, truly, just these different people and the different ways in which God is walking right into the circumstances of their life and, and helping them learn to bear witness and shine light. Stefano, I just so appreciate the time and the stories. Again, one last time, if you're listening this morning, God of the impossible, you will feel as if you're actually immersed in the pages of Scripture. God is still active in this world today. Stefano, have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. You too. We'll take a short break and wrap up this first hour and pre- preview what's coming up next in Hour 2 here of Mornings with Carmen. Boy, part of what I love about interviews like that is it takes us right into the heart of God intersecting with people. And I think sometimes I am guilty of living in relationship to ideas about God rather than living in relationship with God himself. And don't get me wrong, those ideas are incredibly important. How we think about God does inform our lives and our practices, our values, how we decide to walk this whole thing out. But sometimes those ideas can become a bit idolatrous as well and stale and old and not filled with any kind of life. And so great uh, to have somebody like Stefano on the program that moves us from relationship to ideas about God to relationship with God himself and the many ways in which he is active among his beautiful children all around the world. Well, up next, as we start the next hour, it's going to get just, oh, I don't know, a wee bit controversial. I know critical race theory has been in the news quite a bit in a lot of different forms and from a lot of different angles. And so who better than Justin Gibney from the AND campaign to join us and talk a little bit about the lies that serve us both sides of the conversation here in critical race theory. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.